Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to Tales to Terrify, part of the District of Wonders network. Featuring Starship Sofa and Far-Fetched Fables, everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good evening, children of the night. Well, well, well. You might remember me very recently talking about how happy... I am not to have to come to you on my knees begging for money anymore, thanks to advertising and, well, Patreon. And for those of you who are on the District of Wonders mailing list or keep up to date on Twitter or Facebook, you'll know that we came very close to me asking you for money again, because we were in real financial peril. For those of you that are not on the mailing lists, here's what happened. Patreon donors are the bedrock of our podcast network. Patreon announced changes to the way that it does business. The previous and current model is that if you kick in a dollar a month, a chunk of that goes straight to Patreon for payment processing, hosting the website, you know, their stuff. The creative person or project that you're pledging that money to gets a fraction, a large fraction of the money that you pledge. The announced change, which Patreon walked back, would be that the dollar that you pledged would go completely to the project that you're backing, but you would be the one that ate the fee instead of the creative. As someone who works with public schools who are constantly sending their kids out with fundraiser kits where the schools get a much smaller fraction of the labors of those kids selling things that people don't want, I heard about Patreon's changing model, and I liked it. Turns out I was in the abject minority of the Patreon community. We had several donors immediately pull from all projects on Patreon, including the District of Wonders. Our monthly expected income fell below the point where we could honor our most modest financial obligations for stories we accepted to air, meaning we'd be doomed. Some people have suggested that they doubt how bad our financial situations have been in the past. Maybe it wasn't that bad. Well, 
this time. In between Tony's first and second email, where he announced that we had brought a few old and a few new people onto Patreon and Patreon changing their course of actions, I had actually started outlining my notes for our farewell show. If we go through a dry spell with advertising revenue, which we are, we can weather a season of that. But if we start bleeding those of you who are Patreon sponsors, that's too big of a hit. So I said it before, and I'll say it again. Patreon sponsors, you're the reason the show continues. And for those of you who donate nothing to us, hey, I get it. I've got a bunch of podcasts in my feed that I only donate to irregularly. I'm not going to try and guilt anyone into doing something they don't feel obligated to do or have the financial means to do so. Our stories will continue as long as our sponsoring listeners in the district continue to foot the bill for everybody. Or Tony wins the Irish lottery, I suppose. Speaking of stories, our first comes from Claude La Lumiere. Claude is the author of Objects of Worship, The Door to Lost Pages, Nocturnes and Other Nocturnes, and Venera Dreams, A Weird Entertainment. His first fiction, Bestial Acts appeared in Interzone in 2002, and he has since published more than 100 stories, some of which have been translated into French, Italian, Polish, Spanish, Hungarian, and Serbian, and has been adapted for stage, screen, audio, and comics. In summer 2016, he was one of 21 international short fiction writers showcased at Serbia's Kinkinda Short 11, The New Deal. Originally from Montreal, he now lives in Ottawa. The story we are about to hear was originally published in the Book of More Flesh, All Flesh Must Be Eaten, zombie anthology from Eden Studios 2002, edited by James Lauder. Published several times since, and a bit more information about Eden Studios, the All Flesh Must Be Eaten is actually a specific universe that came out of a tabletop role-playing system that despite never having actually played, I do have a great appreciation for, as the entirety of the gaming system is built around a single idea. Zombies. Let's listen to Claude Lalomir's The Ethical Treatment of Meat. Raymond and George had never thought much about religion. They had tried going to services at their local church shortly after adopting the child. It seemed like the right thing to do. But the preacher said children weren't allowed. No animals of any kind. Only people. It had never occurred to Raymond and George that there was that kind of bigotry in the world. They shopped around and found a more open-minded church, about a 30-minute drive away from their home. It was more trouble than they'd bargained for, but they wanted to be good parents. They weren't the first ones to adopt a fleshy as a pet child, almost a family member really, but they were the first in their neighborhood. They decided to get a boy, hoping he'd fit in with the all-male character of their household. The agency said his name was Rod, but they didn't like that, so they called him Scott instead. He was so cute. They loved Scott like a son. It was biologically impossible for people to have children, and George had heard on the news that recent studies indicated that the lack of children was a probable cause of apathy and depression, an unconscious nostalgia for people's animal past. So, when George noticed that Raymond was 
maybe getting a little depressed, he suggested that they nip the problem in the bud and adopt a fleshy child, even if it was expensive. The mere idea of it had so lifted Raymond's mood that George had known it was the right thing to do. Besides, it's not like it was a long-term commitment or anything. Scott was already four years old. He'd only be a child for another ten years or so. Adoption was such a new fad that people didn't really know what they'd do with the fleshy children once they grew up. This was the topic of the preacher's sermon. Scott was sitting between Raymond and George, with a gag in his mouth to keep him from shouting during the service, and his hands tied to make sure he didn't remove the gag. George smiled when he noticed how affectionately Raymond kept his arm around the boy. Most people thought that, once the children grew up, they should be sold so their brains could be used as food, or simply killed by their adoptive families, their brains eaten fresh. Fresh brains were such a rare and delicious treat. That packaged stuff was never as good. Too many preservatives. But the preacher at this church was a radical. She loudly advocated animal rights, even human rights, for fleshies. George listened. He had never considered these ideas seriously before. He used to snicker at anyone so naive to buy into that sentimental propaganda. Glancing at the boy, he pondered the preacher's words. He wasn't convinced, but he realized that he now needed to think about all this more carefully. Food was a problem. Pet food came in two formats. There was kibble, which wasn't too smelly, but Scott clearly wasn't that enthusiastic about it. He loved the other kind, the moist food, but neither George nor Raymond could stand the smell of the stuff, those icky, vegetable, leafy, and fruity odors. They argued about it. Raymond was willing to try, for the boy's sake. Plus, the vet said that the moist food was healthier. George, however, was far from convinced. No, it's just too disgusting, he said as Raymond served dinner. They were having brain casserole with chunky brain sauce. The brain cake they were going to eat for dessert was baking in the oven. It all smelled so delicious. He continued, And who cares if it's healthier? It's not like he's going to have a long life or anything. Raymond looked hurt. Don't say that. You heard what the preacher said. We have to work toward becoming a more compassionate society. To stop thinking about these animals only as a resource, a source of food. I mean, look at them. They look almost exactly like us. Sure, their skin is kind of sickly smooth without any rot, and you can't see any of their bones or anything, but still they almost look like people. They can talk. They walk on two legs. It's not their fault if they smell, well alive or something. Sure, it's kind of revolting that they grow old and then just stop moving once they die, but what we do to them in those factory farms just isn't right. George waited before replying. There was a tense, uncomfortable silence, save for Scott's constant crying and yelling and pounding. The boy always had so much fun when they locked him in that closet. After a few minutes, George glared at Raymond and said, Are you done? Can I speak now? Raymond crossed his arms and nodded reluctantly. First, where do you think this meal comes from? From dead animals. Animals just like Scott. This is what these animals are. Food. Meat. They're our only source of food. And we have to farm them, or else we wouldn't be able to feed everyone. 
Do you? Farming's not natural. The preacher said so, and she's right. You know she is. George was livid. Don't interrupt me. I let you drone on. Now you listen to me. Pouting, Raymond said, Okay, I'm listening. George wagged his finger, his mouth open, ready to bark his anger at Raymond. But instead, he let his arm and shoulders drop and said in a neutral voice, Oh, what's the use? He walked out of the house. What was really irritating George was that he found himself starting to agree with Raymond and the preacher. But he didn't want to. He hated this kind of sentimental anthropomorphizing. Meat was meat. He was starting to regret ever adopting the boy. None of this would be an issue if Raymond hadn't become so attached to Scott. He wandered around the neighborhood for an hour or so, and then decided to go back home. He heard the screams even before he opened the door. He walked into the living room and saw Raymond playing with the boy. Scott's screams were so loud. He must really be enjoying himself. George could see that the boy had shat and peed himself in excitement, tears and snot running down his face. Raymond and Scott looked so beautiful playing hide the maggots that George's anger melted away. He took a handful of maggots out of his mouth and joined the two of them at their game. Scott screamed even louder when George started pushing maggots up the boy's nose. What fun! George softened even more and gave Raymond a loving look. They kissed, the boy's screams making it all the more meaningful. Basil and Judith Vesper were moonbathing on their front lawn when George stepped out of the house to wash the car. They waved at him to come over. Inwardly, he groaned. What were they going to complain about now? What had Scott done this time? Hello, Basil. Judith. They were both smiling. Basil said, I wanted to apologize for almost eating your boy last month. That surprised George. Huh. Thanks. Scott had run away once a few weeks ago, and George had found Basil Fesper about to pop the boy's skull open for a quick snack, but George had intervened just in time. Basil had said, If I ever find that animal on my property again, he'll be a meal. Since then, Raymond and George usually kept the boy chained up to keep him out of trouble. Judith shook her husband's shoulder. Ask him, Basil. Ask him. Basil looked irritated for a second, but then recovered. What the wife and I mean is that hearing all those screams coming from your house, well, it makes us yearn for the pitter-patter of little feet, you know. We're thinking about getting a little one of our own. We were wondering if you could give us the number of the agency where you got Scooter. Scott. Right. Scott. So, what's the number? The preacher led George through the church. George looked at the frescoes depicting the seven-day meteor shower that, according to scripture, released God's chosen from the ground and allowed them to inherit the earth from the fleshy animals who had ruled it in prehistoric times. It was so hard for George to remember that chaotic age, centuries ago, when people first walked the earth. All he could recall was an all-consuming hunger for fleshy brains. Scripture said the feeding frenzy before God gave people consciousness lasted another seven days, but who really knew? George had never really cared about religious dogma. He didn't see the point in arguing over details nobody could prove or disprove. Maybe people had simply been too hungry to think straight. They reached her office in the back. 
she offered him a glass of brain juice. It's organic, she said, from free-range fleshies. Tastes the same as regular brain juice, he thought. Sitting behind her big desk, she asked, Is everything all right with your family, George? How's Raymond and little Scott? Well, there's nothing wrong per se, but that is kind of why I'm here. George looked at the floor and shuffled his feet, not sure how to continue. The preacher waited patiently. George plunged ahead. I've been thinking a lot about all that animal rights stuff of yours. At first I was pretty dismissive of it, but now I'm not so sure. I think I might be starting to agree with you, especially the part about how it's unnatural for people to live apart from animals. I mean, since we've adopted Scott, Raymond's happier than he's ever been. And even I have to admit that the boy's fleshy screams are soothing for the soul. They make me feel, I don't know, complete or wholesome or something. And even the neighbors who were antagonistic when we first got Scott have been adopting fleshy children too. George was getting wrapped up in what he was saying, talking more rapidly. For example, just next door, the Fespers have adopted three children. Three! He shook his hand to emphasize his point and a morsel of flesh snapped off his index finger and fell to the floor. Now, there's a real sense of community in the neighborhood. There never was before. People throw parties and invite the neighbors to meet their new children. That kind of thing. There's never a moment without at least some screaming on our street. And it feels so right. So natural. I'm very glad to hear that, George. But I don't understand what your problem is. Well... I've been thinking about the appalling conditions in the factory farms and all that, and and I think I want to do more. I want to help change things, make this a better world for others like Scott, for the fleshies. The preacher stayed silent, scrutinizing George. He fidgeted in his chair. Did I say something wrong? No, absolutely not. Have you gone crazy? George couldn't understand why Raymond was so upset. You're going to get arrested. And where would that leave poor little Scott, with you in jail and only me to look after him? But Raymond, I'm doing this for Scott. So that he can grow up in a better world. I thought you'd be proud of me. That you'd want to do this too. You're always talking about this fleshy right stuff, arguing with me to see things your way, and now I do. I really do. And I want to do something about it. Talk isn't enough. It won't change the world without action to back it up. That doesn't mean that I condone this kind of... of terrorism. It's criminal, George. Plus, your first responsibility should be to your family, to me, and little Scott. George was getting angry and impatient. First, Raymond fought with him because George didn't believe in animal rights, and now they were arguing because, more than simply spouting slogans, George actually wanted to do something to help the fleshies. Before he could stop himself, he yelled at Raymond, You are such a hypocrite! Such a coward! You don't really want what's best for Scott, just what's best for yourself! And with that, he stomped outside and drove away to the rendezvous point the preacher had given him. The preacher said that they were going to hit a fleshy factory farm, blow up walls and liberate the fleshies, make the authorities notice that people really cared about this, that it wasn't just empty rhetoric. There were nine of them altogether. 
George recognized some of them from the church. They split up in three vans. One of the vans, not the one George was in, was loaded with explosives. They were going to aim that van at the wall of the farm. The explosion should blow a hole big enough to let the fleshies escape. In the confusion, they'd slip in and make sure all the fleshies were freed. There shouldn't be too many people at the plant. They'd chosen a religious holiday for their operation, the first day of the week of the sacred meteors. Well, that was the plan. The first part went off well. They drove far out of town to where the factory was. The driverless van hit the wall. It exploded. It brought the wall down. They waited a few minutes, but no fleshies ran out. In fact, no one ran out. Confused, the group advanced towards the factory. They walked through the damaged wall and into the building. Inside, they saw that the van had hit the security guard's office. His head had been torn off his body. It lay on the floor in the doorway to the corridor. As the animal liberators walked by, the head said, Hey, who are you guys? What the flesh is going on here? The group ignored the security guard. George thought, I sure hope that guy has good medical coverage. Recapitation's not cheap. Then one of the guys kicked the head. The preacher got mad. Ralph, there was no need for that. Ralph, who was so tall he had to bend down to walk through the doorway, looked sheepish and said, Sorry, got too revved up. The factory felt empty, deserted. The corridor led to a number of closed doors. The preacher said, The fleshies must be behind those doors. Come on, let's do what we came here for. The first door led to a broom closet. George opened the second door. Jackpot. The room was huge. Naked fleshies were stacked in a big cage, pressed tightly against each other. Their arms and legs had been amputated, but they were still alive. There must have been hundreds of them. They were all covered in excrement. Their mouths were sewn onto transparent plastic tubes that led to a big vat above their cage. George could see that there was some kind of liquid goop flowing from the machines and into the mouths of the fleshies. George could never have even imagined these conditions. Between the door and the cage, there was a long stretch of tables, on which were piled mountains of amputated fleshy corpses with their skulls sawn open. On the floor, there was a long and deep tub filled to the rim with unprocessed brains. The smell of the raw brains was overpowering. The group of animal liberators, George included, mobbed the big tub and started chomping away at the cornucopia of raw meat. In less than an hour, the tub was licked dry. High on food, the activists approached the cage that held the live amputated fleshies. They tore the iron bars apart with their bare hands. They ripped the tubes from the fleshies' mouths. They cracked the skulls of the animals on the floor and gorged themselves on fresh brains. They fed until they'd eaten all the meat stored at the factory. George lay on the floor in a stupor, his body covered in blood, gore, and brain goo. He was roused by the police sirens. Around him, the other liberators were slowly starting to come out of their post-binge days. George, alarmed by the sound, collected himself and hurried out of the factory. He could see the police vehicles on the road. He ran to a ditch and jumped in. He prayed that the police hadn't seen him. From the ditch, George saw the police round up all of his cohorts and search the would-be liberator's two remaining vans. After a while, they drove off. He'd managed to escape. Raymond had been right. This had been a crazy idea.
They hadn't done any good for the fleshies. All they'd done was eat. And then George got angry at the preacher for putting all these stupid ideas into his head. Eating was natural. Meat was meat was meat, and that's all there was to it. George and Raymond invited the whole neighborhood to their backyard barbecue. The Fespers were the first to arrive, but soon dozens of people were milling about the yard, their children tied up and well-behaved, screaming and crying. Scott was tied to the fence, next to the barbecue. Basil Fesper said, I've never trusted preachers. All that holiness, it warps the mind. Raymond said, Basil, it was only that one preacher who was criminally insane, not all of them. Basil harumphed. They're all trying to contaminate us with their subversive notions, I tell you. I'll breathe before you ever see me in a church. His wife giggled. Oh, Basil, like you need an excuse for not going to church. Honestly, if I hadn't insisted on a traditional wedding... Holding hands, George and Raymond left the couple to bicker with each other. Raymond turned to George and said, Darling, I don't know why I got so depressed before we got Scott, but almost losing you because of that stupid stunt, it really put things in perspective. I love you, and that's all that really matters. I love you too, Raymond. I'm sorry we fought so much, that I got so tense and angry all the time. And all that over an animal, over a ridiculous fad. What were we thinking? They laughed. Raymond clapped his hands to get the guests' attention. Okay, everyone, I guess we should get started. George fired up the barbecue grill. Everyone grabbed their children. Raymond looked at George. He's all yours, darling. George dug his fingers into Scott's skull and cracked it open. He was looking forward to better and better times with Raymond, now that they'd worked things out. But, George thought, I'll miss the screams. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. That was Claude La Lemire's The Ethical Treatment of Meat. 
as read by our own Scott Silk. Scott Silk spends long days staring into the dark heart of corporations and is forbidden to speak about what he sees there. Originally from rural western Pennsylvania, he now lives in Brooklyn with his girlfriend, two cats, and a collection of houseplants. He can be rarely found on Twitter at ScottSilk13. Thank you, Scott. Our second story of the evening is a classic from a very well-known author. Herbert George, or H.G. Wells, born in 1866, was an English writer. He was prolific in many genres, writing dozens of novels, short stories, and works of social commentary, satire, biography, and autobiography, including even a book on war games. He is now best remembered for his science fiction novels and is often called a father of science fiction, along with Jules Verne and Hugo Gernsback. His most notable science fiction works include The Time Machine, The Island of Dr. Moreau, The Invisible Man, and The War of the Worlds. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Literature four times. Wells died in 1946. As a strange bit of unintentional serendipity, the mentioned war game that H.G. Wells wrote is called Little Wars. A 2004 reprinting of those rules included a foreword written by a fellow by the name of Gary Gygax, who credited Little Wars' direct influence on his war game, Chainmail, and his much more famous game, Dungeons & Dragons. Dungeons & Dragons spawned an entire industry of role-playing games, including All Flesh Must Be Eaten, for which we, just minutes ago, heard a story based on in that setting. But now, let's hear H.G. Wells' The Red Room. I can assure you, said I, that it'll take a very tangible ghost to frighten me. And I stood up before the fire with glass in hand. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, and glanced at me askance. Eight and twenty years, said I. I have lived and never a ghost have I seen as yet. The old woman sat staring hard into the fire, her pale eyes wide open. Aye, she broke in. And eight and twenty years you have lived and never seen the likes of this house, I reckon. There's a many things to see, when one's still but eight and twenty. She swayed her head slowly from side to side. A many things to see and sorrow for. I half suspected the old people were trying to enhance the spiritual terrors of their house by their droning insistence. I put down my empty glass on the table and looked about the room, and caught a glimpse of myself abbreviated and broadened to an impossible sturdiness in the queer old mirror at the end of the room. Well, I said, if I see anything tonight, I shall be so much the wiser, for I come to the business with an open mind. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm once more. I heard the faint sound of a stick and a shambling step on the flags in the passage outside. The door creaked on its hinges, and a second old man entered, more bent, more wrinkled, more aged even than the first. He supported himself by the help of a crutch. His eyes were covered by a shade, and his lower lip, half averted, hung pale and pink from his decaying yellow teeth. He made straight for an armchair on the opposite side of the table, sat down clumsily, and began to cough. The man with the withered arm gave the newcomer a short glance of positive disdain. The old woman took no notice of his arrival, but remained with her eyes transfixed steadily on the fire. 
I said it's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm, when the coughing had ceased for a while. It's my own choosing, I answered. The man with the shade became aware of my presence for the first time, and threw his head back for a moment, and sideways to see me. I caught a momentary glimpse of his eyes, small and bright and inflamed. Then he began to cough and sputter again. Why don't you drink? said the man with the withered arm, pushing the beer toward him. The man with the shade poured out a glassful with a shaking hand that splashed half as much again on the deal table. A monster shadow of him crouched upon the wall and mocked his action as he poured and drank. I must confess I had scarcely expected these grotesque custodians. There is, to my mind, something inhuman in senility, something crouching and atavistic. The human qualities seem to drop from old people insensibly day by day. The three of them made me feel uncomfortable with their gaunt silences, their bent carriage, their evident unfriendliness to me and to one another. And that night, perhaps, I was in the mood for uncomfortable impressions. I resolved to get away from their vague foreshadowings of the evil things upstairs. If, said I, you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I'll make myself comfortable there. The old man with the cough jerked his head back so suddenly that it startled me and shot another glance of his red eyes at me from out of the darkness under the shade, but no one answered me. I waited a minute, glancing from one to the other. The old woman stared like a dead body glaring into the fire with the lackluster eyes. If, I said a little louder, if you will show me to this haunted room of yours, I will relieve you from the task of entertaining me. There's a candle on the slab outside the door, said the man with the withered hand looking at my feet as he addressed me. But if you go to the red room tonight... This night of all nights, said the old woman softly. You go alone. Very well, I answered shortly. And which way do I go? You go along the passage for a bit, said he, nodding his head on his shoulder at the door, until you come to a spiral staircase, and on the second landing is a door covered with the green baize. Go through that, and down the long corridor to the end, and the red room is on your left up the steps. Have I got that right, I said, and repeated his directions. He corrected me in one particular. And you're really going? said the man with the shade, looking at me again for the third time with that queer, unnatural tilting of the face. This night of all nights? whispered the old woman. It is what I came here for, I said, and moved toward the door. As I did so, the old man with the shade rose and staggered round the table so as to be closer to the others and to the fire. At the door, I turned and looked at them, and saw they were all close together, dark against the firelight, staring at me over their shoulders, with an intent expression on their ancient faces. Good night, I said, setting the door open. It's your own choosing, said the man with the withered arm. I left the door wide open until the candle was well alight, and then I shut them in and walked down the chilly, echoing passage. I must confess that the oddness of these three old pensioners in whose charge her ladyship had left the castle, and the deep-toned, old-fashioned furniture of the housekeeper's room, in which they foregathered, had affected me curiously in spite of my effort to keep myself at a matter-of-fact phase. They seemed to belong to another age, an older age, an age when things spiritual were indeed to be feared, when common sense was uncommon, an age when omens and witches were credible, and ghosts beyond denying, 
Their very existence, thought I, is spectral. The cut of their clothing, fashions born in dead brains, the ornaments and conveniences in the room about them even are ghostly. The thoughts of vanished men, which still haunt rather than participate in the world of today. And the passage I was in, long and shadowy, with the film of moisture glistening on the wall, was as gaunt and cold as a thing that is dead and rigid. But with an effort, I sent such thoughts to the right about. The long, drafty, subterranean passage was chilly and dusty, and my candle flared and made the shadows cower and quiver. The echoes rang up and down the spiral staircase, and a shadow came sweeping up after me, and another fled before me into the darkness overhead. I came to the wide landing and stopped there for a moment listening to a rustling that I fancied I'd heard creeping behind me, and then, satisfied of the absolute silence, pushed open the unwilling baize covered door and stood in the silent corridor. The effect was scarcely what I expected, for the moonlight coming in by the great window on the grand staircase picked out everything in vivid black shadow or reticulated silvery illumination. Everything seemed in its proper position. The house might have been deserted on the yesterday instead of twelve months ago. There were candles in the sockets of the sconces, and whatever dust had gathered on the carpets or upon the polished flooring was distributed so evenly as to be invisible in my candlelight. A waiting stillness was over everything. I was about to advance and stopped abruptly. A bronze group stood upon the landing hidden from me behind a corner of the wall, but its shadow fell with marvelous distinctness upon the white paneling and gave me the impression of someone crouching to waylay me. The thing jumped upon my attention suddenly. I stood rigid for a half a moment, perhaps. Then with my hand in the pocket that held the revolver, I advanced only to discover a Ganymede and eagle glistening in the moonlight. That incident for a time restored my nerve, and a dim porcelain Chinaman on a bowl table, whose head rocked as I passed, scarcely startled me. The door of the red room and the steps up to it were in a shadowy corner, I moved my candle from side to side in order to see clearly the nature of the recess in which I stood before opening the door. Here it was, thought I, that my predecessor was found, and the memory of that story gave me a sudden twinge of apprehension. I glanced over my shoulder at the black Ganymede in the moonlight and opened the door of the red room rather hastily, with my face half turned to the pallid silence of the corridor. I entered and closed the door behind me at once turned the key I found in the lock within, and stood with the candle held aloft, surveying the scene of my vigil, the great red room of Lorraine Castle, in which the young duke had died, or rather in which he had begun his dying, for he had opened the door and followed headlong down the steps I had just ascended. That had been the end of his vigil, of his gallant attempt to conquer the ghostly tradition of the place, and never, I thought, had apoplexy better served the ends of superstition. There were other and older stories that clung to the room, back to the half-incredible beginning of it all, the tale of a timid wife and the tragic end that came to her husband's jest of frightening her. And looking round that huge shadowy room with its black window bays, its recesses and alcoves, its dusty brown red hangings and dark gigantic furniture, one could well understand the legends that had sprouted in its black corners, its germinating darknesses. My candle was a little tongue of light in the vastness of the chamber. Its rays failed to pierce to the opposite end of the room, 
and left an ocean of dull red mystery and suggestion, sentinel shadows and watching darknesses beyond its island of light, and the stillnesses of desolation brooded over it all. I must confess some impalpable quality of that ancient room disturbed me. I tried to fight the feeling down. I resolved to make a systematic examination of the place, and so, by leaving nothing to the imagination, I dispelled the fanciful suggestions of the obscurity before they obtained a hold upon me. After satisfying myself through the fastening of the door, I began to walk round the room, peering round each article of furniture, tucking up the valances of the bed and opening its curtains wide. In one place, there was a distinct echo to my footsteps. The noises I made seemed so little that they enhanced rather than broke the silence of the place. I pulled up the blinds and examined the fastenings of the several windows. Attracted by the fall of a particle of dust, I leaned forward and looked up the blackness of the wide chimney. Then, trying to preserve my scientific attitude of mind, I walked round and began tapping the oak paneling for any secret opening, but I desisted before reaching the alcove. I saw my face in a mirror, white. There were two big mirrors in the room, each with a pair of sconces bearing candles, and on the mantel shelf, too, were candles and china candlesticks. All these I lit one after the other. The fire was laid, an unexpected consideration from the old housekeeper, and I lit it to keep down any disposition to shiver, and when it was burning well, I stood round with my back to it and regarded the room again. I had pulled up a chintz-covered armchair and a table to form a kind of barricade before me. On this lay my revolver, ready to hand. My precise examination had done me a little good, but I still found the remoter darkness of the place and its perfect stillness too stimulating for the imagination. The echoing of the stir and crackling of the fire was no sort of comfort to me. The shadow in the alcove at the end of the room began to display that undefinable quality of a presence, that odd suggestion of a lurking, living thing that comes so easily in silence and solitude. And to reassure myself, I walked with a candle into it and satisfied myself that there was nothing tangible there. I stood with that candle upon the floor of the alcove and left it in that position. By this time I was in a state of considerable nervous tension, although to my reason there was no adequate cause for my condition. My mind, however, was perfectly clear. I postulated quite unreservedly that nothing supernatural could happen and to pass the time I began stringing some rhymes together, in Goldsby fashion, concerning the original legend of the place. A few I spoke aloud, but the echoes were not pleasant. For the same reason I also abandoned, after a time, a conversation with myself upon the impossibility of ghosts and haunting. My mind reverted to the three old and distorted people downstairs, and I tried to keep it upon that topic. The somber reds and grays of the room troubled me, even with its seven candles, the place was merely dim. The light in the alcove flaring in a draft and the fire flicking kept the shadows and penumbra perpetually shifting and stirring in a noiseless, flighty dance. Casting about for a remedy, I recalled the wax candles I had seen in the corridor, and with a slight effort, carrying a candle and leaving the door open, I walked out into the moonlight and presently returned with as many as ten. These I put in the various knick-knacks of china with which the room was sparsely adorned, and lit and placed them where the shadows had lain deepest, some on the floor, some in the window recesses, 
arranging and rearranging them until at last my seventeen candles were so placed that not an inch of the room but had the direct light of at least one of them. It occurred to me that when the ghost came, I would warn him not to trip over them. The room was now quite brilliantly illuminated. There was something very cheering and reassuring in these little silent streaming flames, and to notice their steady diminution of length offered me an occupation and gave me a reassuring sense of the passage of time. Even with that, however, the brooding expectation of the vigil weighed heavily enough upon me. I stood watching the minute hand of my watch creep towards midnight. Then something happened in the alcove. It did not see the candle go out. I simply turned and saw that the darkness was there, as one might start and see the unexpected presence of a stranger. The black shadow had sprung back to its place. By Jove, said I aloud, recovering from my surprise. That draft's a strong one. And taking the matchbox from the table, I walked across the room in a leisurely manner to relight the corner again. My first match wouldn't strike, and as I succeeded with the second, something seemed to blink on the wall before me. I turned my head involuntarily and saw that the two candles on the little table by the fireplace were extinguished. I rose at once to my feet. Odd, I said. Did I do that myself in a flash of absent-mindedness? I walked back, relit one, and as I did so, I saw the candle in the right sconce of one of the mirrors wink and go right out, and almost immediately its companion followed it. The flames vanished as if the wick had suddenly nipped between a finger and thumb, leaving the wick neither glowing nor smoking, but black. While I stood gaping, the candle at the foot of the bed went out, and the shadows seemed to take another step toward me. This won't do, said I, and first one and then another candle on the mantel shelf followed. What's up? I cried with a queer high note getting into my voice somehow. At that, the candle on the corner of the wardrobe went out, and the one I had relit in the alcove followed. Steady on, I said. Those candles are wanted. Speaking with a half-hysterical facetiousness, and scratching away at a match the while, for the mantel candlesticks. My hands trembled so much that twice I missed the rough paper of the matchbox. As the mantel emerged from darkness again, two candles in the remoter end of the room were eclipsed. But with the same match I also relit the larger mirror candles, and those on the floor near the doorway, so that for the moment I seemed to gain on the extinctions. But then in a noiseless volley, there vanished four lights at once in different corners of the room, and I struck another match in quivering haste and stood hesitating whether to take it. As I stood undecided, an invisible hand seemed to sweep out the two candles on the table. With a cry of terror, I dashed at the alcove, then into the corner, and then into the window, relighting three as two more vanished by the fireplace. And then, perceiving a better way, I dropped matches on the iron-bound deed box in the corner and caught up the bedroom candlestick. With this I avoided the delay of striking matches, but for all that, the steady process of extinction went on, and the shadows I feared and fought against returned and crept upon me. First a step gained on this side of me, then on that, I was now almost frantic with the horror of the coming darkness, and my self-possession deserted me. I leaped panting from candle to candle in vain struggle against that remorseless advance. I bruised myself in the thigh against the table, sending a chair headlong. I stumbled and fell, and whisked the cloth from the table in my fall. My candle rolled away from me, and I snatched another as I rose. 
Abruptly, this was blown out as I swung it off the table by the wind of my sudden movement, and immediately the two remaining candles followed. But there was light still in the room, a red light that streamed across the ceiling and staved off the shadows for me. The fire! Of course, I could still thrust my candle between the bars and relight it. I turned to where the flames were still dancing between the glowing coals and splashing red reflections upon the furniture, made two steps toward the grate, and incontinently the flames dwindled and vanished. The glow vanished. The reflections rushed together and disappeared. And as I thrust the candle between the bars, darkness closed upon me like the shutting of an eye, wrapped about me in a stifling embrace, sealed my vision, and crushed the last vestiges of my self-possession from my brain. And it was not only palpable darkness, but intolerable terror. The candle fell from my hands, I flung out my arms in a vain effort to thrust that ponderous blackness away from me, and lifting up my voice, screamed with all my might, once, twice, thrice. Then I think I must have staggered to my feet. I know I thought suddenly of the moonlit corridor, and with my head bowed and my arms over my face, made a stumbling run for the door. But I had forgotten the exact position of the door, and I struck myself heavily against the corner of the bed. I staggered back turned, and was either struck or struck myself against some other bulky furnishing. I have a vague memory of battering myself thus to and fro in the darkness, of a heavy blow at last upon my forehead, of a horrible sensation of falling that lasted an age, of my last frantic effort to keep my footing, and then I remember no more. I opened my eyes in daylight. My head was roughly bandaged, and the man with the withered hand was watching my face. I looked about me trying to remember what had happened, and for a space I could not recollect. I rolled my eyes into the corner and saw the old woman, no longer abstracted, no longer terrible, pouring out some drops of medicine from a little blue vial into a glass. Where am I? I said. I seem to remember you and yet I cannot remember who you are. They told me then, and I heard of the haunted red room as one who hears a tale. We found you at dawn, said he, and there was blood on your forehead and lips. I wondered why that I had ever disliked him. The three of them in the daylight seemed commonplace old folk enough. The man with the green shade had his head bent as one who sleeps. It was very slowly I recovered the memory of my experience. You believe now, said the old man with the withered hand, that the room is haunted? He spoke no longer as one who greets an intruder, but as one who condoles with a friend. Yes, said I. The room is haunted. And you have seen it, and we who have been here all our lives have never set eyes upon it, because we have never dared. Tell us. Is it truly the old Earl who- No, said I. It is not. I told you so, said the old lady with the glass in her hand. It is his poor young countess who is frightened. It is not, I said. There is neither ghost of Earl nor ghost of countess in that room. There is no ghost there at all. But worse, far worse, something impalpable. Well, <gasps> they said. The worst of all the things that haunt poor mortal men, said I. And that is, in all its nakedness, fear. Fear that will not have light nor sound, that will not bear with reason, that deafens and darkens and overwhelms. 
It followed me through the corridor. It fought against me in the room. I stopped abruptly. There was an interval of silence. My hand went up to my bandages. The, the candles went out one after another and I fled. Then the man with the shade lifted his face sideways to see me and spoke. That's it, said he. I knew that was it. The power of darkness. To put such a curse upon a home. It lurks there always. You can feel it even in the daytime. Even of a bright summer's day. In the hangings, in the curtains. Keeping behind you however you face about. And at dusk it creeps in the corridor and follows you. So that you dare not turn. It is even as you say. Fear itself is in that room. Black fear. And there it will be. So long as this house of sin endures. That was H.G. Wells' The Red Room, as read by Spencer Disparty. Spencer Disparty is a poet and musician who lives in Phoenix, Arizona, with his wife and two-year-old whirlwind of a son. He is narrated for Pseudopod, Starship Sofa, and Escape Artists. You can find his music at soundcloud.com slash skillometry. Link will be in the show notes. Thank you, Spencer. That will be our show for the night. Visit our Patreon page in the links below, and don't forget to like us on Apple Podcasts. Our show is produced by our editors Scott Silk, Seth Williams, and Drew Sebastini. Website designed by Josh Lightsey. And theme music by Diane Severson. Tales to Terrify is distributed under Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 4.0 license. Join us again next week for another episode of Tales to Terrify. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network. Dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. 
juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.